0: Welcome to the Healthy Beast. Today's guest is Dr. Harry Weisinger. He's a family doctor. He's also a scientist, university professor. He's had over 50 scientific papers published, mostly about nutrition and physiology. He's also had a whole list of health problems, hip replacement, Crohn's disease, non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. So it's a miracle he's still with us let alone being quite so healthy cycling competitively. He's even found time to start a supplement company called Truth Origins, selling organic plant-based Amigas, curcumin, MCT oil, things like that. Does so that makes him sound like a bit of an egghead. Maybe he is? Thankfully, he's also a no-nonsense Aussie, so he gets right to the point. I learned a lot of great stuff about how to recover and just get on with your life. Hope you enjoy listening. Lovely, Dr. Harry Weisinger. Thank you very much for doing the podcast. Pleasure to be here. Now, your story interested me because I think I saw well, I saw someone who someone who'd been messed up and kind of pushed through it. So you had a quite a big medical history, but now you're super healthy and cycling all over the place. Yeah, I mean, um, I've, I think it's
1: fair to say I've had my share of health challenges over the over my life. I sort of, um, I guess, I first got exposed to you know serious. Illness at the age of seventeen. So I was, um, you know, I remember in, in uh, sort of my final year of high school, just getting this, you know, pain in my, pain in my guts, sitting in the first period, you know, the first class of the day, and every day I had, you know, I had this kind of excruciating abdominal pain that had me doubled over, and it would it would go away after about half an hour. And finally, you know, my parents thought, all right, we better, we better go and get, um, get Harry checked out. And so I went to you know, one GP after the next and, and basically nothing really came of it, but I kept having this sort of you know, episodic abdominal pain. And then I guess finally made my way, you know, after 12 months, basically made my way to see a gastroenterologist who uh, picked straight away that I had Crohn's disease yeah so that that was sort of my first encounter you're uh, kind of fit and healthy up to them you a sportsman school yeah, so i was always physically active you know that's the uh, australian way so lots of lots of cricket and aussie rules football and you know played basically played sport my whole life but at the time i was you know to i guess to give you a bit of feel for it. By the time I was diagnosed with Crohn's disease, um, which was in my first year of university, and I'm six foot tall, I was 58 kilograms. So I was pretty skinny.
0: What's that? Skinny. In, old, so that's
1: old money, that's kind of... Oh, g- yeah, don't even ask me to put it into pounds. Not far, yeah, not much. Skinny. Skinny. Really, really pencil skinny.
0: Unattractively skinny. <laughs> <laughs> Couldn't buy a date. Yeah, yeah. How, so how long between first feeling ill and kind of being a
1: I think it was a year and um, as I said I saw GPs uh, you know and it wasn't I, I think it's kind of subtle at the start and this is this you know lots of people share this story it's it's not really clear what what's brought you in today you know got a bit of tummy pain know yeah, that's really common if if GPS referred you know every patient with abdominal pain to the gastroenterologist the gastroenterologist would ring them and tell them to piss off pretty quickly yeah. so so yeah I don't think it was I don't think it was atypical that that uh, it took such a long time to reach a diagnosis but the minute the gastroenterologist saw me was like yeah yeah 18 year old guy that looks like a pencil doubled over in the morning with abdominal pain that's Crohn's disease until proven otherwise and yeah I had all the tests and and what have you and then they put me on um, some pretty heavy doses of corticosteroids, you know, prednisolone, and I felt better instantly. And then, and of course, you know, you're a young person. Lots of lots of young people have to deal with illness, of course, but you know, you're you're trying to, you know, your head's in a different place when you're 18. I don't know if you remember back, but you know, you're worrying about all sorts of stuff that is really important at the time, but. Yeah, now as a you know 40 something year old I don't think about any of those things anymore but you know I've got teenage angst and all that all that business I'm trying
0: to deal with the university and I'm trying to you know get a date for the weekend and what have you but you, you managed to have a normal sort of normal life with this in the background or were you kind of off school and so I missed exams in first
1: year university I was too sick so it all came to a head around the middle of the... Because you already
0: at university. Yeah I
1: was it? at university yeah, yeah. By, the time, by the time I was sort of diagnosed with Crohn's. Um, yeah and I, I, I missed exams and so that... Uh, yeah I mean that was, believe it or not, you know, quite an important experience because it, it sort of forced me to get serious about university. Yeah, because I had a lot of ground to make up, having missed exams. So I really needed to do very well in the second half of the year. I was going to have to repeat the whole year, and... and. what are you studying at this point? So I was studying a science degree uh, in optometry, which is which is my background, my initial background, I guess. Uh, but I you you asked know. about um you, you asked about you know living a normal life um, in spite of illness. Well, I as. Yeah, you know, I've I've said I don't really think it's a decision to sort of crack on and and um, try and live a normal life with serious illness. Um, I think it's you just do it. I mean, I didn't see it as a choice. You know, should I should I press on?
0: No, but then you're seeing things through your eyes, aren't you? I suppose, and I don't think it's that people give up. Mm. I think it's that sometimes people. Accept that identity. Mm. Yeah, I think you're yeah. right. That's, I think that, that's, I think the the problem. And I don't, I don't think you know the people that, that it's their thing that you know they want to tell you about their condition. They want mm. to tell you, and that's kind of the thing in their life that they talk about. I think that's the that's the danger that you can become you know consumed by it. Or, or or part of your identity is the illness exactly. itself. Yeah.
1: Certainly, there are people that are defined in large part by by their illness or illnesses in that way I've had lots of illness lots of brushes with medicine and never find myself as that illness it's uh, and not even and and you know I've been fortunate obviously um, in that I'm happy and healthy today but I have Apart from Crohn's, um, I've dealt with 30 bowel obstructions with Crohn's and two resections, so two surgeries where they've okay, cut out, out. Yeah, cut cut bits out. I've had um, I've had my left hip replaced. I've had a uh, right coronary artery stented, and I've had um, I've been treated for um, lymphoma.
0: So, yeah, I've had. I've had some challenges. I'm doing that awful thing of listening to all the things you said and thinking which one of those sounds <laughs> worse. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. yeah. Because the, the one that when, when I was reading about your story the one that stuck out maybe wrongly was the hip replacement because you had it done really young right? Yeah. You were, what? 39. I was 39 so yeah and maybe that just stuck out because like your mind um, latched onto things it can understand Yeah. and you're like Crohn's is I've I've interviewed someone with Crohn's before, Mm. and it sounds like a horrible illness. It can be. Mm. But the the hip, everyone thinks, oh, because everyone knows that's something that happens to a lot of people when they're older. Yeah, yeah. well, younger and younger, actually. I mean, yeah, so I was playing a
1: lot of basketball in university. And, you know, yeah, this was obviously before marriage and kids, so I had a bit more time. Um, but I was playing basketball four times a week competitively and just loved it. Uh, and it's brutal on, on your body. Um, so heavy training and, and competition schedule, time at the gym, you know, obviously I guess born somewhat funny, you know, like something predisposed me to get, arthritis in my hips so young, this is, this is not that uncommon. And by the time I was sort of 37, I guess, I'd already had um, arthroscopy to see if they could clean out, you know, invert commas, clean out the joint. It bought me less than a year of relief. And then, so I went to see the surgeon um, and I said, you know, how am I gonna go? What's the prognosis, Doctor? And he said, um, Do you know, the most common feedback I get after this operation is is people saying, I wish I'd done it earlier. And I definitely felt that way. So I had this I had this done uh, you know, really good surgeon, um, who just did hips. You know, we we sort of joke, I sort of joke. Yeah, this guy's so super specialized he just did left hips right so he, yeah. this he, this guy was fantastic and um, he used a, a relatively novel technique which instead of sort of cutting this big you know wound down the side of your leg he'd come in from the front and there was a lot less trauma to the body than than the full-on sort of old-fashioned total hip replacement and i was back at work five days later, like really? literally five days later on, you know, paracetamol. And, and after three months, yeah, I, I remember sort of, you know, walking around one day and, and thought, I don't, I haven't felt my hip today. You know, it was the first time in, I don't know, five or six years, I hadn't felt my hip.
0: Hmm.
1: It was just magnificent. How long,
0: how long after the Oh, it was three months. Really?
1: Of, you know, did a bit of physiotherapy um yeah it was amazing
0: and what's your main sport is it cycling now? yeah so i guess um yeah since we're talking
1: about how sick i've been we might as well carry on with the story but because it's relevant to how i found myself as a competitive cyclist right but i i was um you know i was rehabilitating from the hip replacement and i'm and i'm in a gymnasium and it's the middle of winter which in Australia isn't you know it's nothing by British standards but it was cold in the stadium anyone that's sort of played uh, any sort of sport in a stadium in winter knows exactly what I'm talking about like the air is cold and so I was I was just starting to run up and down the court Um, and by this stage I had had a young child and so my daughter and I are playing just mucking around on the court. You know, it's really my first time back running, and I get this feeling as I run in my throat, as if I'd swallowed an ice cube. It just—it it was a funny sensation. You know, it's the only way I can really. So nothing it's, in the hip, just. No, no, but this was this was this was something else. Yeah. So I'm running. My hip's fine. I'm running up and down the court, and as I run it's like I've swallowed an ice cube and I stop running and the sensation goes away and I run and it's like I'm swallowing an ice cube and I thought oh shit this is this is angina you know this is this is serious so my dad
0: and you're, and you're a doctor so I'm a doctor probably, okay yeah, so so I'm
1: yeah. acutely aware of the of the you know and and of course most doctors are you know, fearful of all disease and their hypochondriacs and you know all that sort of stuff and, but my dad had had a stent in his sort of mid 50s, and, and we've got heart attacks all over the family. You know, we've scarcely a grandparent that lived past 60 something, right? And so, as, with this as a background history, I'm thinking, but surely not. Yeah, but it is, it is you know, related to exercise. No, but I'm too young. Yeah, you know, so it's back and forth, back and forth. Again, goes to the GP and he says, oh, come on man, you, you know, you're fit and healthy, you've never smoked, you don't drink, you know, your cholesterol's normal, blah, blah, blah. Oh, just to be sure, I'll send you to the cardiologist. The cardiologist looks at me up and down and goes, it's not gonna be that. But just to be sure, I'll do an exercise stress test. So I'm, so I'm again, it's just soon after my hip, so he puts me on the treadmill and starts cranking up. I don't know if you know how they do a stress test, but you basically got this protocol where they wire you up with ECG leads and then progressively get you to exercise harder and harder on a treadmill. And they've got a protocol that they follow and it gets harder and harder. Well, I was in pain from my hip on this, <laughs> on this exercise test. So I, I sort of, yeah, you know, I had to I had to call time basically on that basis alone. I never really got to the to the high level of exercise. So I'm sitting down recovering after the stress test, and the and the cardiologist, who's now a very good friend of mine, was explaining to me that everything was fine, there was, you know, no no sign on the ECG of, of any sort of, you know, blockage in my coronary arteries. And as we're talking, he goes, Hang on. He looks at the, he looks at the um, ECG trace and I'm showing some sort of sign in recovery. He says, oh, look, just to be safe, I'll send you for a CAT scan. And again, the, the radiologist says to me, oh, look, it's, gonna, it's not going to be anything. And sure enough, the next day I got a phone call from the cardiologist saying, you've, had a, you've, had a, you've got a subtotal occlusion of your right coronary what's that for Those a blocked artery a blocked artery yeah so you know at risk of at risk of heart attack and and i guess the the good the good side of the story is that m- most people in their late 30s or early 40s that present with coronary artery disease present with death so they they have sudden death cuz I guess I was very lucky in that I was getting angina. You
0: know, angina is a warning that something's not right. So, you, do you think if you if you hadn't uh, have followed it up, if you hadn't had a medical training, you could well have? Oh yeah, no, I would have. I would have.
1: Yes, I think I would have possibly ignored it, and lots of men died. do, and yeah, maybe died, um, or or had a heart attack. Yeah. Um, so the so doctors listening to your podcast are probably thinking, well, right, coronary, yeah, who cares? I mean. It's not the main one but in any case it's a scary so, prospect. So, so your right coronary that's the... That's well it goes to your right side of your heart so that's not the side of your heart that pumps to the whole body. It pumps to the lungs so it's, a, it's it doesn't... The requirements on that side of the heart and for that artery are not as high mm-hmm. as for the left side we're getting mm-hmm. getting technical
0: but anyway so there's so not the not as bad side you they're not you, as bad side. you potentially would have a heart attack but it can still right
1: work. if you're Good. gonna if you're gonna get a if you're gonna get a coronary artery blockage get one on the right okay. side yeah.
0: <laughs> well, don't first choice don't go on at all exactly but if you can't choose your way. you
1: know you can't choose your genetics yeah. right no. so i had if you sort of list the risk factors the known risk factors for coronary artery disease, I had none of them except family history and a very strong family history. So you'd done everything you could
0: Well, with your lifestyle but your family yeah, history?
1: Yeah and and of course there are lots of people that do the opposite and have no coronary artery disease and good for them.
0: So how long ago is this now? You, it's nine years. Nine years ago. Mm. And so you had, the, you had, it's a fairly simple procedure. Yeah, simple as far as I was concerned, I was lying on a table and the, the cardiologist
1: passes a, a um, catheter into your artery through your through your um, hip basically the femoral artery and up to the heart and they sort of do it under under x-ray guidance and they can uh, record blockages with x-ray so they can visualize where the blockage is and then they basically put in a little thing called a stent which holds the artery walls open and um yeah so I had a stent at 40 which is that's pretty young yeah I mean how long uh, before you were back on your bike then so I hadn't been this this was I guess the long segue to to how I go into cycling and so the cardiologist as a good friend of mine said to me you should come cycling and so I I had a you know one of those hybrids, sort of okay for the trails, okay for the road kind of bikes, and I went cycling with my cardiologist, and of course he was you know leaving me in the dust to begin with, and then after I uh, after I figured out that I wasn't going to have a heart attack <laughs> cycling, then I started getting more and more serious, um, and funny enough, um, you know I got this. I got this payout from my health insurance uh that was like you know ten thousand pounds um because i had you know sort of trauma insurance yeah you know, if you have a heart attack or, or if you have some sort of coronary event not enough to make it worth happening no 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 not you wouldn't make... you certainly wouldn't no right. no you certainly wouldn't go out of your way uh for the money but anyway it gave me some money to buy by a really nice bike so i bought this beautiful bike um called a Pinarello, which of course what team sky have been using for those who know cycling um, not me yeah not me yeah well anyway it's a really nice italian bike and yeah the thing was like you know five six thousand pounds like really expensive bike and so i'm i come to this realization that i'm a totally shit cyclist with a fantastic bike it's a lot of those around this way <laughs> so you yeah, know what what do you do when you're in that situation you can either get rid of the bike I mean you can either you know sort of deal with that sort of cognitive load or you can get rid of your bike or you can become a better cyclist and I happened to have a patient that was a cycling coach and I asked him yeah, do you know do you think you could coach me and so he set me a program and then within four months I was I was racing and just love it so and and then be I guess being the the doctor, you know, the GP that races bikes. Next thing I knew, my book was half filled with cyclists, and that you know, some of them were coming in to for performance reasons. You know, they wanted to do bet You know, can you check my bloods? Can you help me with diet advice, etc.? And some of them were coming in because they had hay fever or you know, ingrown toenail. But basically, I had you know, this town I was working in. I had. It must have been
0: 50%, 60% of the cyclists in the city were coming to me. Just not, so even if it's non-cycling related, they just kind of thought, well, he'll understand. He'll understand, he'll get, yeah. you know, and, and they'd all say to me, you know, the other GPs don't get it. I've heard that a lot with, yeah. um, with martial arts guys as well, actually, because um, if you're any contact sport, really, if the doctor doesn't understand contact sports, they'll be like, well, why, why would you want to do that to yourself? You know, absolutely. They kind of like, well, and they don't get it. And they go, they'll okay, go, just stop. Yeah. They go, just well, why don't you stop with right. jiu jitsu? So totally. Great, great advice. And which... I and I think I do
1: see it differently. You know, to the to cyclists that don't to GPs that don't cycle competitively. I mean, it it is an extraordinary thing to race, you know, race in cycling or to to ride for. 70 miles and do 3,000 meters of climbing you know it's extraordinary or it's extraordinary to ride for 200 miles a week week in week out these demands you put on the body as it would be for martial, mixed martial arts extraordinary demands and and I don't think you can deal with these in a you know, say with a normal diet or just with a normal way of living. These are, these are not normal things we're doing to our bodies. So you can't, you, you know, you, you can't eat the same stuff. You can't, um, I mean, in cycling when you're, you know, and I've looked after professional cyclists, these guys, what they're doing to their bodies is absolutely extraordinary. And they're burning through red blood cells, so they've got higher demands for all sorts of stuff, vitamins, iron and so on. So I think I sort of got that and I also understood the cyclist mentality, you know it's
0: a bubble that, that they live in, cyclists. So you're talking about competitively, how deep have you gone, how serious is it for you in your life, cycling?
1: It's, it's a major, major part of my life it's um it's my main physical pursuit but cycling is for me and i think for lots of people and i know you know sort of from your sort of martial arts community so it's a community right and so it's it's a social outlet it's um it's a way you can measure your own development it's meditative it's health promoting up to a point of course yeah racing often tips it to potentially unhealthy you know, if you're having an accident or something like that um, but it's 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 a major it's a major part of my
0: life and as i said it's it's kind of a bubble if you if you had the space if your life provided the space how many hours a week would you would you well, give to it yeah i mean f- I think,
1: so currently I probably cycle 12 to 15 hours. I train for 12 to 15 hours a week and a lot of it is in the dark. I mean, that's, you know, it's a high volume activity. You, to get good at cycling, you need to put in the Ks, you know, put in the miles. And so, you know, we all work. So when are you gonna cycle? You're gonna cycle at 5 a.m. So you cycle from 5 a.m. and you ride for a couple of hours and you have a coffee with your, with your mates and then, then you go off and get ready for work and and so it's not it's not so much that i'd um do more although i would do more but i would do it in the daylight a lot more um because it's not sometimes not so much fun cycling in the in the cold and the rain and the dark but um yeah i'd probably i'd probably do a bit more and of course you know when you when you're working you cycle close to home and i think if I had the time and the space I'd, I'd probably go a bit further afield that's the main mm, that's the that's, main thing. But it's big for you and you, you compete as well? Yeah it? so I've so I've raced variably on and off I guess for the last seven or eight years um, yeah I'm a complete amateur but it doesn't matter it's it's um, again I you know so I took up cycling at 40 and when I, when I started um, racing, and you know getting sort of good in my grade, I encountered the most painful experiences I've ever put my body through, and it's extraordinary. So if you, um, again, you may have some cyclists that, uh, but but it's not limited to cycling. You, I'm sure you understand this when. When you can push your body to the point you're, it's screaming, you know, your heart is screaming and your muscles are screaming, at the time it's not much fun, but looking back it's like, wow, I've got my body to do that, you know, and nothing, nothing I've done has ever been so physically demanding as the, as the, the time where you, where you try and, get go off the front of the peloton and get away by yourself and try and hold that hold them off for half an hour Yeah, you know, there's nothing so painful and so you know amazing
0: yeah i think the nice thing about starting things when you're a bit older is you're you you you're clear about what you're doing it for you're not you know you're not trying to be a professional or that's right you, you know there'll be limitations by your age but you just do it because you because you love doing it, and you, and as you say, that buzz you get from pushing yourself—oh, absolutely—is amazing. Yeah, it doesn't—it doesn't matter what grade
1: you race in; it just just doesn't matter. You go as hard as you can. It doesn't hurt me any less than it hurts a professional. No, right? It hurts just the same. So I know I've put pushed my body right to the edge,
0: um, and that's. That's what you get the satisfaction from. So, what stage during all your kind of illness and sport and everything did you decide to become a medical doctor? Because you were studying something else. And mm. then you, you know, I started. I started, you
1: know, in science. Did a did a um, optometry degree. Then I did a a um, master of science, which is a research um, degree. Then I did a PhD in visual neuroscience and um, nutrition, and then sort of branched into, got interested in things like blood pressure, body weight. So I basically, at this point in time, been at university for best part of 10 years, um, and was pretty certain I was going to be a scientist. Um, And then, so an eye scientist of some. Well, uh, as I eye, said, I so branched I into nutrition and and sort of systemic physiology. So blood pressure control, body weight control, and all the all the intricate mechanisms in the brain and in the body that control what blood pressure we have and 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 body weight and body fat. Now these things, these were the things that were interesting to me, and so I you know I was working as a scientist. And, and actually doing pretty well. You know, I'd sort of published, I don't know, maybe 50 publications and I'd, um, I'd won sort of $2 million over the time of grant funding. But it was, it was getting harder and harder to win funding for research. And it occurred to me that lots of the competition had medical backgrounds. So because I was moving into blood pressure and body weight. Well I was writing grants that were in the same competitive field as the cardiologists and the physiologists that were doing this as their side interest.
0: And I thought, well, you know, better go and get a medical degree. So you'd done all the kind of specific science yes yeah. that they might not know about, but you hadn't got the the basic So I got yeah, math. so I went a different path. I guess i became a scientist first and a doctor
1: second. And whereas you see a lot of Doctors decide to do a research qualification, mm. but I guess you all end up at the same. You end up at the same place. So there I was, sort of mid thirties, you know, as a as a junior hospital doctor. Uh, what
0: was it like being the only grown up there? <laughs> so I went through with a few grown
1: ups because um, medical education in Australia sort of changed to be postgraduate. So okay. you do get a lot of. Yeah, you know, I went through with with. Know, physiotherapists and nurses and pharmacists and so forth. So I wasn't alone. I mean, I was one of the oldest. Um, but that
0: no, was, you know, it was a good time in my life, and you know, it was hard work, obviously, but but uh, good. So you'd already done a kind of a lot of nutrition science before that, mm. and something that's come up on this podcast a lot with um, doctors is that they don't do any of that. Mm. I don't know if it's different in australia but here apparently if you do a five-year uh-huh. medical degree it's it's a morning yeah course or an afternoon that you know they set up some trestle tables you can come <laughs> and listen if you want and, and no one goes you know, it's not they're not tested on it yeah so i don't know if that's the same for you that it's not nutrition is not really for the doctors it's like
1: it's a really good point i mean it, it wouldn't even have been a morning in, really? in my training. leaflet Yeah, possibly a leaflet. Who knows? I I mean, it's you know, medicine. Such an interesting career, such an interesting education, but it's not set up for. It's not really set up for health. Mm. It's set up for disease. It's 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 really good at fixing sick people. It's not great for preventing sickness and and it, look it's getting better uh there is some recognition that we're not gonna operate and prescribe our way out of the problems that we've got with in society's health diabetes for instance that if we don't do something about preventing diabetes you know we're fucked basically right like, we can't afford we can't afford the complications, you know, let alone the medication load of, of um, diseases like diabetes. We have to do something to prevent it. I heard, I heard some uh, commentator talking about extremes, what, well what seems extreme, like individuals with diabetes for instance having their own coach, it would be cheaper for the health service in the long run, to assign a coach to every person with diabetes, in preference to let people have their condition deteriorate, suffer the complications, hospitalisation, operation, loss of productivity at work, etc. etc. The cost of the cost of the world, cost of the country is enormous. So get them a coach, go to the house, rifle through the pantry, get rid of all the garbage. Teach, teach them how to eat. Teach them how to cook. Teach them how to exercise. You'll be better off. And I, I actually think that's right. But it's it's not, as I said, it's not it's not mainstream medicine nutrition. It's a it, this is an afterthought, and it's coming to be recognised that it is more important than than what we thought. And the other the other aspect is that what we thought was true. In terms of nutrition like the you know the food pyramid for instance like you and i know food pyramids upside down right you want to lose weight you cut your carbohydrate simple eat higher fat but do you know what we as i said we live in a bubble like this health conscious athletic community we all understand that you've got a base of complex carbohydrate grains and Fruits and vegetables and this that, and the other—that's yeah. the base—and you should consume most of that. Yeah. And then, then on top of that, you've got in the middle, you've got protein, so eggs, meat, chicken, legumes, whatever. And then at the top, a little bit of fat. And so this was this was taught. This has been taught in school and been taught in university for decades. And and what does it give you? Well, it gives you what I had, right? coronary artery disease, diabetes, cancer, depression, etc. That These are the, these are the things. It, I guess, um, you know, I tell this to patients, you know, coronary artery disease is a new disease. It, it, this hasn't been around forever. It's, this is new. It's like virtually undocumented until like the 40s or something, maybe the 40, 30s or 40s. But this is all new, and it comes from you know. If you're a conspiracy theorist, you'd say the grain industry, you know, wheat and grain, pushing this base of you know cereals and grains and what have you. But you know, whatever the whatever the um, you know motivators behind it, what we know now is that it's not healthy eating a lot of carbohydrates. And if you if you walk down the aisles of the supermarket, still largely carbohydrate. Um, if you look in most people's pantries, largely carbohydrate. And and
0: we we really have a job of work ahead. So you you because I, I think most people have got got past this thing that fat makes you fat, although not everybody, <laughs> not everybody. You still hear you know people mm. that should know better. Yeah. Um, But the carbohydrate thing, I agree with you, by the way. But mm. um, it's just such a, it's such an easily easily accessible part of everything. Everything. Totally. So, yeah. Some coffee shops you can go in and then you've got coffee. Yes. And then the only food you've got is carbohydrate. Is carbohydrates. Yep. Absolutely. You know. I mean, yeah.
1: So the fat makes you fat. That's you know that's a fallacy. So that's that's categorically untrue. And they pushed that for years. Well, it's it's. Yeah, I mean I, I can't get my parents to see it any other way. You know, and despite your, your doesn't matter it does how many
0: degrees
1: <laughs> it doesn't matter how many degrees you've got. <laughs> they don't believe it, fat makes you fat. And and it's true to say that in terms of calories, fat's the got the most calories of any, you know, gram for yeah, gram. If you were going to eat a
0: certain size yeah, that's right. of food every, every Exactly. Day. But what 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 we don't know,
1: or what you know, I guess the general population don't know Is that when you eat fat you powerfully suppress your appetite and you don't invoke as much of a uh, insulin response as when you eat carbohydrate and we know insulin is responsible for a lot of the problems that that we're seeing in terms of what we call the metabolic syndrome and diabetes so what, what we want is to eat less calories and to have less insulin circulating in our bodies and that's generally a good thing it's not that it, you know to to be honest and to be clear if you eat four thousand calories a day it doesn't matter whether it's fat carbohydrate or protein it's too much okay unless you're a marathon unless you're running a marathon every day but what eating higher fat diets enables you to do is to eat less calories without feeling like you're starving and that's that's the issue with most diets is you know, we understand that reducing what you eat in terms of calories is the most effective way to lose weight but it's it's really hard to do when you're feeling hungry because mm. we are wired to eat when we're hungry so Fat is what actually lets people eat less without feeling like they're starving. And that's that's why we've seen diets like the paleo and ketogenic diet, which are extremes of of a high fat, low carbohydrate diet, and they're very effective. And people can stay on these diets for well, for the rest of their lives if if they chose to.
0: Mm. It's not much fun, but they're very effective. Yeah, I think it's think thing, we, you see a lot of overweight people, they're hungry all the time. Mm. That's the thing, constantly, constantly, even though they're eating far more than they ought to be, always hungry, and it's that des- It's that carb desperation, it's that, yeah. as, as I see it.
1: Yeah, so you really, you know, this, this is why the ketogenic diet or, or variants of it have so much promise. It's that, it's that suppression of appetite, because, you know, yes, A lot of our eating is habitual, ritual, um, but some of it is some of it is hunger. Um, Not so much in the Western
0: world. Do you ever um, go go periods without eating? Do you do fasting? Yeah, I do. Yeah, yeah, I try that. How long? The longest I've fasted is twenty-four hours,
1: just uh, out of interest. And I've I I do find it hard as a cyclist because it's. You will run out of if you run out of sort of stored energy, you're in trouble. Uh, if you want to go at higher intensity, which I tend to want to do, but um, what I've tried most commonly, I suppose, is is um, intermittent fasting, where I would um, have my last meal, last food of the day at say 8 p.m. and not eat until lunchtime the next day, and that's that's reasonably. Um, easy to manage and so people that do that three or four times a week will lose a lot of weight and f- will feel a lot better
0: it's also supposed to be really good for your immune system and so forth is it is it, do you believe yeah. in all of that or i don't i don't no i i don't know i'm not familiar with the research on it so i couldn't comment but i've heard that myself yeah i think i may be doing that awful thing of kind of half remembering loads of different things but yeah, yeah. It, it kind of made sense to me that your body goes into this kind of panic defensive state yeah and it's that's actually good for you rather than constantly drip feeding food yeah of
1: course of time. course you're right i mean our our whole physiology is is sort of evolved yeah this this period of food abundance this is a new thing right this is not how we evolved we evolved to deal with scarcity that's that's the human genome it deals with scarcity. So where you get a buffalo once every week, you have to eat the buffalo, and then you've got to basically fast until the next buffalo comes along or whatever. And, and so the, when we, um, so, so it's a, it's a, it's a um, I guess our physiology is, is set up to store energy really well and to access that energy in times of starvation. So we, starvation just being a period where you're not eating. You know, it could be a day starvation from a physiology mm-hmm. point of view. And that's not what we do anymore, of course. We, you know, it's three square meals a day plus snacks. And in fact, we, of course, we were talking about this, um, you know, in, in uh, you know, the, the, this was advice being given by nutritionists and doctors. And even you know, even in the schools, it was lots of small meals per day, is better than this big load. And and while that's true, while that's true, you will, if you eat through the day, you will still store a lot of calories around your abdomen. Yeah. So. Yeah. There's a challenge. You know, this is this this is the sort of challenge of our time in you know, in in countries where there's food abundance. The challenge is not gaining weight mm. Yeah, you know, I, I I I struggle and I as I said I'm training 14 hours a week
0: if I don't watch what I eat I'll still gain weight I'm amazing yeah it's easy to do I think the older you get for sure yeah as well so you talk about nutrition so I got to know you through this you got involved with the supplement company it's truthorigins.com.uk mm. So did that come about through your involvement with sport and looking at ways to yeah supplement what you're eating. Absolutely. So as a as a sort of a
1: competitive person, you know, right right back to when I was I guess playing basketball at the university and now cycling. You know, you're you're always looking for ways to perform better. Feel better, train better, recover better, and um, so so together with, with my good friend Trent, who's also you know competitive athlete in in martial arts. We you know, we were you know, we we're um, we were interested in obviously you know, pre dating Truth Origins. We were interested in supplements to to improve performance. Always taking you know creatine and protein powders and whatever trying this stuff. And then we were pretty keen on establishing some sort of business. We've we've, been friends for a long time and we talked about doing something together forever. And then we came across a company uh, in Australia, some scientists in Australia that that had developed some really interesting stuff. Um, You know, they didn't have many products, but they're, they're the whole thing was making things that were relatively non-absorbable, like turmeric, into water-soluble. So, these really smart guys um, in a lab in Australia had come up with with um, some some products that were organic and water-soluble uh, and yeah, that's that's really how we came to found tr- Truth
0: Origins because there was there was a. so you do, so sorry to interrupt because mm. so you do you're doing um, so you're doing vitamin C, yep, and amigas. yep, and curcumin, and curcumin and MCT, And MCT also. Cause, MCT. Cause I was just pointing. The reason I interrupted because you talked about solubility and um. Mm. I think I think a lot of people get a bit skeptical about this. Is what kind of interested in reading about your company a lot of people are skeptical about various things they take because they don't think they're getting absorbed by the body they kind of mm. that they, they wonder if it's the same as taking it in good food mm. and it mm. seems like you guys have taken this focus on things that actually mm. work as well as mm. yeah. scientifically feasible yeah I mean there's so much to talk about I mean, I'm, I'm a
1: skeptic right so my medical and scientific training leads me to the default position of not believing anything but wanting to test it you know I'm curious and I think as I said before when you're doing extraordinary things which all of us are doing whether it's whether it's physical or mental you know we're we're doing even if you sit at a computer for four hours a day that's extraordinary compared with what we're you know sort of Set up physiologically, Extraordin- mentally, as an extraordinarily bad. It's extraordinarily bad yeah. for you. But we ask ourselves to get up, go and spend the be- you know best hours of our day at work, and then come home and be you know mentally and emotionally available for our family. This is this is you know this is a very demanding things that we're doing, and I think we can't rely on what has always been a typical you know healthy diet to give us everything that we need and I, I'm personally always looking for the edge not not over not over the next person but the edge for me to feel better to think better to perform better just to just to yeah be better and um, as I said, very. I, I'm sceptical about a lot of this stuff. Um, given my given my background, but you know what I also know is that, and this is this is really the most important thing, is that if we wait for the scientific proof to be categorical for anything we will be waiting a very very long time so if you take if you take curcumin which is an active compound extracted from the the spice root turmeric which is a f- bit of a fad now. You know, you see a lot of a yeah, s- lot of turmeric. stuff around turmeric.
0: It's kind of, It's become the new butt of jokes for a, a posh middle class area. You know, yeah. like turmeric lattes. Yeah, that's right. Turmeric lattes. So, yeah, it's that kind of. Thing. Yeah, we, we've started to see turmeric lattes so, in so Australia. Yeah. But
1: but if you take so that, curcumin,
0: that's, a, that's a compound with curcumin is a compound within turmeric. It is. Yeah. Right? Okay. It is, and it's it's the it's the uh, it's
1: believed to be for, for whatever the whatever the um, you know the whatever turmeric is doing in the body, it's it's believed that curcumin is responsible for that activity.
0: And this includes, but is not limited to, so it's anti-inflammatory. Yep. I mean, this is all with your you know your scientist's yes. s- skeptical head. Yeah. The main claims anti-inflammatory and and various other things. It's yeah. Caused. I mean,
1: it's it's it's. I mean, it's been thousands of studies on turmeric or curcumin and some of the some of the science is incredible um, what this what this can do it's early days so you know here's what i'll tell you about curcumin it's safe in high quantities this is the most important thing because as i said whether it does something or not of benefit we we're not going to know categorically for a very long time if it's not safe, it's a non-starter, obviously. Right? This stuff is safe. It's been used for thousands of years in high quantities in cooking, right? and, and it's been used in high doses in studies and has been found to be safe. And then the question about what it does of benefit can be answered you know, with some comfort now, in that you go, all right, well, it's safe. That's a good start. I wonder if it does anything. And some of, the, some of the, as you say, anti-inflammatory. So we know that in, I guess, in vitro studies, so test tube studies and in animal studies, this shows massive potential in affecting the pathways of inflammation. So it blocks inflammation. There's a complex cascade of um, changes that occur to cause inflammation in the body, in the joints and curcumin interferes with that in a test tube and in an animal and in the early studies on humans, it looks like it works and it's safe, right? So that's the first thing. The second thing is incredibly, it's, it interferes with cancer proliferation so again, how how's this done? It's well. Let's let's get some breast cancer cells and put some curcumin on them and see what happens. And it stops it in its tracks. To, and this is of interest, obviously, to drug companies. They're developing chemotherapy um, regimens to the point where there are drugs being developed that have a traditional chemotherapy drug attached to curcumin so as said there are there are lots of studies some of them on things like
0: period pain you know joint pain and that's why i started hammering it because i thought yeah because i guess from a punter's point of view like i am you are not scientists you you've got all these scientific caveats but if they're safe, you you want to start you want to you want to start trying things, but it sounds like you're saying that the medical profession is is doing very targeted research with it as well. Well, the scientific
1: and medical um, communities are testing it. We'll we'll certainly know more and more about it over time. There's no question. Um, you. But as I said before, we can't wait. We can't wait for the for the you
0: know incontrovertible research, and that's. Well, you, Sorry, to interrupt, mm. you, you can be scientific about some stuff because, for example, with the bio bioavailability, yes. talking about that, you can test. Yes. So you could test if you if you take this turmeric, you're mm. you're going to get a small quantity of this compound. Yes. So it's not it's not water soluble. I mean, if you if you take the spice
1: turmeric and you put a teaspoon in the glass of water, it'll sit on top of the water. You stir it, it'll sit on top of the water. It's Hydrophobic, which means it doesn't like water, and a lot of the a lot of the um, absorption uh, mechanisms that the body uses rely on water solubility, a lot of them. That or fat
0: solubility. So otherwise it just passes through you. That, this that. stuff passes through
1: you in large quantity. I mean I've read studies that say it basically goes through you know Untouched. It, untouched. Okay, so yeah, keep, a good keep having
0: the same yeah
1: yeah right and 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 so it 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 totally makes sense that if it's water soluble more will get to where it's going to work and so that's what these that's what these clever um, folks in in australia um, developed and so that's what attracted us is okay so it looks like curcumin does some really nice things and let's get some curcumin that actually gets to the body. So that's what we've that's what that's what we've got. And my role in the company is really to apply my medical and scientific training and background and natural skepticism to all of the things that we bring to market. Because you know, I think it's very it's getting harder and harder for you know, the people in the community to be able to understand what's out there in terms of information. There's a lot of shit information. and blogs have become you know a pseudo, well, not even a pseudo. like blogs and tweets have become you know gospel almost. I mean to give you to give you a point um, on this, we you, know, we you know we advertise this stuff and we use Facebook. Like like everyone else, you know, use Facebook to advertise. Um, and someone wrote a comment on our someone wrote a wrote a comment on our Facebook page um, that was disputing one of the not even one of the claims. I mean, the, the word, we get questions all the time about whether whether um, curcumin affects blood clotting. Now there's some early research that shows it might affect blood clotting, and there's some anecdotal um, sort of reports that people's um, requirement for for blood thinners goes down when you take turmeric. Okay, so yeah, there's the possibility that it does, but there's nothing categorical in the research. So this is our position, and I, when I speak for Truth Origins, I don't speak as a doctor. I speak as an advocate. And a, and a scientist that summarises the, summarizes the literature on the topic and, and someone wrote in on Facebook and said it's on YouTube that it clearly affects clotting. don't listen to Truth Origins. And I thought fuck me, YouTube is now yeah, you know,
0: nature medicine And what, what you were doing was the right thing. You were offering, <laughs> so you were offering the, the the kind of caution, right, scientific caution. But even uh, so, so but in
1: a, you know, does that surprise you? Yeah, you know, you're a journalist. You understand this is this is the age of, of you know unreason. My job is to state the facts as we know them, summarise the research try and make it accessible, but not spinny. Yeah, you know, my this is this why we tr- why we call it truth because I just wanted to.
0: Just wanted to stop all the garbage. Yeah, because it's very easy to it's very easy to find people who are certain about things on the internet. You know, there's it's full of people that will tell you this is exactly how it is, and that's the end of it. And then there's another load of people who tell you, no, that's bullshit. This Absolutely. So yeah, that's that's what you know. I liked about the look of the company that there's they're offering up. Look, this is here we are. This is the best we can do. But you're not going to because I think when you. When you overblow claims, that's when people are thinking, well, mm. okay, we know why you're doing that because you want to sell more, but. Yeah. but right, yeah, don't get me wrong. I mean, I'd, I'd love to sell lots of this stuff,
1: but, I, but, but we, want, we want people to make a good informed choice. And we want to give comfort that the stuff we sell is safe and then has all the, all the properties of being organic plant based petrochemical free you know all the extraction methods are all you know natural no synthetics are used it doesn't touch plastic you know blah 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 it's all this is all as good as it's going to get and then we'll find out over time and that's that's you know i think we've got some brilliant stuff um and some and some really unique um really unique products in the in the liquid uh, you know, water soluble form. So I'm, I'm, I'm really upbeat about, about what Truth Origins is up to, and I think there'll be more, some more stuff. You know, as we develop again, evidence based, you know, scientifically robust.
0: And you're testing it all on yourself as well as you can. Absolutely,
1: absolutely. I wouldn't, I would not sell anything. I wouldn't use myself. I've been using, curcumin now for, I guess, best past six months. Mm. Um, I've noticed a change in. Back pain. So I had, I have I've had a disc prolapse, and and like you, I've had uh, corticosteroid injections under guidance, and just had this nagging, nagging low back pain, and then started taking curcumin. Didn't really think much of it for a while, and then I think maybe a month after starting, back pain gone. Yeah. Now I've had it for years,
0: <laughs> years, and that's just gone. I went, wow, it could work. Yeah this might this might be the curcumin, you know who knows well, I mean you are a great personal example like with all you've been through <laughs> to to still be here like strong and oh
1: look I, sure. yeah yeah
0: no I'm yeah
1: but I'm like the you
0: know, like the next guy I'm
1: just just you know want to feel as good as I can perform as good as I can
0: and I'm willing to you know within the limits of what is safe I'm willing to try just about anything Amazing. Well, if people want to see more of the company, it's truthorigins.co.uk. And um, Harry, it was great to talk to you, Dr. Harry Weisinger. Thank you. Thank you very Thanks much. Thanks for having me. Cheers. Thank you very much to Dr. Harry Weisinger. You can find out more about Truth Origins at truthorigins.co.uk. It's at truthorigins on Instagram. Healthy Beast is at Healthy Beast podcast. Thanks very much for listening.